so welcome listeners again for this week's uh, session this week's topic would be g20 bali summit and uh, for few minutes maybe cop 27 also we will discuss later if time permits uh so this year's uh, g20 summit was hosted by indonesia uh, it was quite a, a headlines inducing summit um, there were quite interesting things that were reported from the summit um, and this was uh, reported and covered very well because after the pandemic i think this is the first uh, proper like summit in person summit between all the leaders um and uh, the center of attraction was definitely xi jinping as he is a interaction with a lot of uh, uh, basically all the countries there uh, xi jinping's brief greetings with uh, indian prime minister narendra modi also caught eyes of everyone then there was a wide reportage on how this year indonesia and other developing countries shaped the way the g20 final joint statement of the g20 summit was given and uh, and other details we will discuss as the discussion proceeds so us finest uh, first point i would like to discuss about this g20 is from the chinese perspective so do you see china coming down taking more conciliatory approach after xi jinping taking third term and he showed kind of a more reconciliatory or more amicable approach even considering even in the joint statement uh, uh, the final joint statement there is a categorical mention of uh, accusation against russian federation waging war against ukraine which i thought was kind of surprising after reading those lines especially from the standpoint of india and china um, how do you see it you swinest i think it's more of a setback for xi jinping than anything calculated in uh, from that perspective what i think has happened is uh, russia is starting to become an albatross for both india and uh, china in the sense that both countries sort of are in this weird position where they want russia on their side to play them off against the other party um but at the same time they are also they are also very cognizant of the fact that getting too close to uh, russia will effectively be akin to flying very close to the sun because you could also end up on a, a series of uh, sanctions that could prove crippling and more importantly i think especially uh, with china and india at the g20 if you notice um there was some reportage especially by the financial times that talked about how um the what we're talking about which is the condemnation of the war in ukraine occurred uh, despite russia and china's attempts to sort of get it out or not get it out of the statement but try and stop the wordage being um that explicit and i think there is some truth to that because uh, again going back to the point i just made china too is starting to get a little fed up of what's happening there because they already have enough problems of their own with the us but them being seen as very close to china or oh sorry being seen as very close to russia only adds to the list of problems especially when we know that uh, they are increasingly looking at taiwan as uh, something they want to take by force um if not now then at least in a in a decade or two that it sort of looks that way i'm not saying it's going to happen that way um on the other hand uh, they are also very wary of the fact at least i believe 
they are very weary of the fact that india is getting closer and closer to uh, the us there was also very interesting reportage i think um, especially on cnn yes it was on cnn that talked about how uh, india's position ever since the ukraine war has broken out has uh, risen it may not have risen as exponentially as people may like it to be or some people claim um, claim it to be but it has risen nonetheless and this does make china a little um how to put this it does it does rock their boat because again they are very weary of any um nato slash us attention coming to their neighborhood and india is definitely one of those countries that will bring that attention to the neighborhood especially what happened post galwar so i think i'll stop here for now but that's sort of a brief take of what how i see the situation so abhivadan like as you finally saying this is kind of setback but do you also see like uh, there is less news on like uh, uh, what you say bri like belt and road initiative we don't see any more uh, new investments new projects regarding those uh, there is a larger setback uh, economic setback in china and there is a report report there are reports saying that there is again increasing covid cases in china which may again halt uh, economic recovery or at least delay economic recovery so at least for foreseeable future do you see this more mild muted uh, diplomatic uh, approach of china um interesting question see um there's a possibility that as you finance pointed out um, the g20 bali summit statement is actually a setback for the chinese counterparts and the and as you pointed out on the infrastructure initiatives like bri and others i mean we knew it as obor as well right one belt one road and all that so uh the problem was mostly with how will the chinese ensure that whatsoever infra- infrastructure initiatives they are having will bear some fruit now what happens with xi jinping is he tries to posture show this posture that he's very strategic about you know doing these initiatives be it bri be it you know the galwan debacle or how it happened at the border uh, you know be it how they you know how he treated justin trudeau in the g20 summit that video is out viral everybody can watch it um what happens is that it is strategic from the side of xi jinping because he thinks that he has that middle kingdom mindset he thinks that yes i actually wish to you know convert my intentions and my approach in policy but it they're hasty also right and they're not dynamic enough they uh, they have some good vision maybe for chinese interests maybe not others interests like russia india us but um they are very hasty and maybe that's a very important factor which is why they had initiatives in africa they had tried to invest in eastern europe now that's not happening very soon because eastern european countries are already you know trying to settle things up when it comes to because of you know their own uh, vision they're not vision i'd say their own concern of russian deterrence and uh, uh, the focus of america is more on eastern european countries than western european countries right now due to the situation in ukraine unfortunately so uh, there also china has a halt then maybe something could be a case between central asian countries turkey and china but that even is not happening largely so yes a lot of halt has happened the cpec situation in pakistan is turbulent 
you know, because we knew that CPEC, the route of CPEC from China to Pakistan will actually go through the POJK area, Pakistan occupied Jammu Kashmir area, which belongs to India officially as per Indian position. And obviously it is there. It is the case. So, uh, yes, um, one thing which we can say at least is that, um, yes, there have been some interesting leadership changes in the party Congress. And we have discussed that in the you know previous spaces as well. But um, they are more power grab aspects, which we are seeing right now. So um, Xi Jinping may try to bide some time because he has to. There is no other way if he tries to act too much aggressive on this or any of the aspects to go ahead. Maybe he would not be able to handle them pretty well. And plus the COVID policy obviously has its own implications. So yes, it's it's interesting. But I'll 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 just pause here for a while. Um, I'll add up once you ask more relevant questions. Yeah. Well, this was the one aspect or one way to interpret how the Chinese meeting went in the G20. But there was another aspect of it. Now, if if you read or like the go through the uh, Politico.eu's uh, article about like the how all the major European countries uh, were trying to have that private uh, space with Xi Jinping and court Xi Jinping individually, and how European leaders like Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Michel were not allowed a standalone meeting. Like, in fact, they didn't meet uh, Xi Jinping at all. Like, so the European delegation, the European institutional delegation was not allowed to meet, but the one-on-one bilateral meetings were allowed to happen. So this tells some other story, right? This also tells like West is also vulnerable. Maybe US is not, but like the larger West is also vulnerable to the economic shocks and all. Or do you think they were trying to court Xi Jinping so that they may convince individually through platitudes and all in terms to basically calm down vis-a-vis Ukraine war? I mean, I don't know, but Europe yeah. looked weak. Europe looked weak. That's what I was yeah, so use finest would be very happy to add something to it. I'll just quickly add on Europe. Again, I mean, uh, use finest may remember, right? We had a spaces a discussion in which we were discussing Joseph Borrell's statement on European, you know, European foreign policy and, you know, all those flamboyant statements. So it all boils down, boils down to the situation that, see, now let us say that Germany's chancellor, he actually went... Uh, all of schools, he went to China, right? And then we also saw a situation that uh, uh, the French and German uh, heads of states are actually trying to, you know, maintain some dialogue with the Chinese. Now, at the same time, what happened... I, I is, that, uh, just to, sorry to interject, but I think yeah. there was also skirm- I mean, uh, some kind of a diplomatic skirmish between... Uh, or I won't say skirmish, but there was some uh, kind of uneasiness between French uh, diplomats and... Uh, 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 German diplomats because Fra- French diplomats or uh, Macron wanted a joint meeting with Xi Jinping, yes, but he German wanted a joint not... meeting. Yeah, he yeah, wanted German a joint was... meeting. Yeah, thanks for that. He wanted a joint meeting and that did not happen. And uh, maybe it could, but um, with the Germans, the concern was the economy. You know what kind of an economy they are, and their reliance on Chinese goods. With France, it's different, but. Uh, then what happened, interestingly, which was quite hilarious to watch, is that the European Council president, whose recorded speech as a video, was to be played in, a, in an event in Beijing, maybe, you know, which was uh, about EU-China cooperation or something. 
you know uh, just uh, the eu council chief had criticized china <laughs> Uh, you know on the same democracy versus autocracy analogy and uh, obviously that video wasn't played played out because the chinese found out <laughs> so it, with europe it's the same case as always i mean um, they don't uh, have to, they don't define their strategic autonomy now they they don't focus on uh, you know interests and this is what you know always comes back at their face sadly and they just can't rely on a discourse where washington leads uh efforts to you know you know i would say unify china and russia in one lens and say fine you know what we are going to engage with you in that way because even the americans uh, have their own priorities and they have to shape up the indo pacific and if europe doesn't you know uh become flexible and see how their indo pacific avenues can come up it could be problematic for example uh, recently a news has come in on the uk india fta that uh the very fact that in the so called draft which was leaked um and it is now published by lancet also if i if i'm right that the very uh, in india indian generic medicines which don't cost too much um you know even to indians and even people in the uk uh, as per this agreement it would support the big pharma complex right the sector and that could affect nhs scheme in united kingdom so it boils down to how your domestic situation helps you how your domestic priorities helps you which is why that is halted then there are issues with european union and india on the fta because of clearing houses wherein you know rbi and sebi did not allow european commission to proceed with respect to the indian clearing houses who were restricted by european union's regulators so that's the problem i mean they want to have a, a proactive approach in china they understand what beijing does everywhere but you know they are stuck in their dilemmas and sadly it's a repetitive case to see but i think us finance may add something a lot on the strategic point yeah before us finance jump in on uh, europe china at g20 uh, i would just like to add like specifically the dutch case in fact the mark rutte's meeting with xi jinping in which xi jinping said that uh, Uh, the, the dutch company asml which is one of the largest semiconductor manufacturing countries uh, should not join the us led export control strategy and th- th- there was a, after that meeting um, now two parallel things happening like asml has confirmed its largest investment in taiwan uh, on the other hand uh, after the g20 meeting the uh, dutch minister has said that uh, netherlands won't Netherlands export strategy is not same as United States export strategy. I mean, confusing signals, mixed signals. I don't know if just it will be signaling or like uh, the, uh, Netherlands. I mean, I, I don't think Netherlands can oppose United States in terms of West semiconductor strategy. But definitely. Yeah, and 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 before you finish that, just very quick point in thirty seconds. And if when it comes to semiconductor, if New Zealand, uh, if Netherlands is not clear, and uh, obviously they can't oppose the us because opposing the us could affect the situation that the west is not united on semiconductors they can't have alternative markets which could help if they are not you know streamlining their export strategies and so forth so yeah this is a huge concern for europe and you know netherlands has to figure it out so yeah i i'll i'll now give the floor to us finance please yeah sorry uh so i look at this through multiple angles and So just bear with me. This may seem a bit scatterbrained, but it does sort of uh, coalesce together at the end. 
so the one way you can look at what's happening right now is uh, what i call strategic cold and cold in the sense of you know you fall sick kind of cold so europe has suddenly been uh, after a long span of time spent in what i call the decades of the spirit of helsinki they're finally waking up and realizing that their continent is not as peaceful as it seems they no longer had the power they once held and now their only security guarantor who can actually do something is the us and over the centuries oh sorry over the decades of peace that they've had slowly but steadily they've weeded out any sort of uh, quote unquote hawk as you would define a hawk from say an indian perspective like someone like say for example bismarck who you would consider a very classical european hawk you will never ever find in um, europe or you will rarely find in europe and if you remember abhivardhan we had talked about this last time i had made particular mention to the fact that a lot of this ties into um, a sort of how do you put this anti nationalism that uh, the that many western european states seem to be gripped by and mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned earlier uh, domestic policy does affect foreign policy in a big big way i mean this ties into cop 27 again where we are seeing the eu basically act like china where they're trying to throw their weight around and threatening to leave negotiations so th- this is one aspect of it which is they are strategically muddled and they don't exactly know how to approach the quote unquote chinese problem do you play ball with the chinese and do what uh, the germans did with the russians which is basically try and influence through trade but we all know how that ended up or do you take a very hardline position uh, with regards to china in which case you will incur their wrath but you hope that the us offsets that wrath um or do you do nothing and just be a neutral third party and uh, because they don't have a sort of experience india has when it comes to dealing with china and because unlike india which is a gradualist country that takes time to uh, set its foreign policy objectives and then act on it um they seem to they seem to be trying to um, how do you put this make sense of reality very very quickly it it appears that way the second point is um there is it, it is undeniable that lobbies exist in every country and that lobbies strongly influence domestic and foreign policy uh, to different degrees and we know that with germany there has been reportage that suggests that even though the security apparatus within germany is extremely hesitant about letting china in cognizant of the kind of damage that the chinese security apparatus can do if you all remember they've been running secret police stations all this while um the business lobby seems to have uh, been able to push chinese investments or has seemed to be able to push uh, chinese investments into germany we don't know the exact status of where it is right now but it's certainly uh, through the gates so to speak and this also speaks to the fact that uh, this also dovetails into the fact that no two european countries are quote unquote alike so typically within europe you sort of had two broad powers post brexit you had the french and you had the germans now the french as everyone here knows are sort of like the india of europe just one second there's very loud noise outside apologies about that um so as i was saying the french are sort of known as the um india of europe they sort of do their own thing they like to have their own strategic autonomy they have a they have their own decolonial sort of um framework within which they sometimes like to operate and as we've seen with macron he is a bit of a maverick in that from that perspective because he does things that you would conventionally not associate with the eu bloc member simultaneously germany while it is a massive industrial powerhouse and certainly dictates uh, power flows within the european union framework 
it does seem very again this goes back to strategic confusion very confused about how to exercise that power so on the one hand there is tremendous concern over selling arms to a to a country like india that has quote unquote human rights problems in uh, jammu and kashmir but on the other hand they aren't uh, particularly worried about uh, flooding their arms into countries in africa where these arms can be put to some really 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 uh, damaging uses or they seem to have defanged their army in and as we all know when the ukraine war began there were a few linkedin posts that call, that stirred a lot of drama but on the other hand they are now suddenly trying to ramp up defense spending the now that the uh, russians have started knocking at their gates uh, so the two power blocks themselves are also very disunited because one of them literally is sort of stumbling through the darkness and the other one sees itself as part of the eu but also doesn't see itself as a part of the eu it sees itself as french for better and for worse and the, to conclude to sort of uh, how do you put this to coalesce all of what i've just said the european union approach to china is extremely scatterbrained or appears very illogical precisely because it is illogical because every country itself is struggling to come up with a coherent china strategy a uh, half of them especially the uh, security apparatus within their nations is extremely concerned the business apparatus uh, stands at least in some contrast to the security apparatus and the political class is trying to navigate domestic policy figuring out how much uh, anti china sentiment is too much anti china sentiment because again the europeans have this very weird post world war 2 thing where they think that the sins of an austrian painter is the, their collective sin of some sort so that sort of my take on the european union and their problems with um, china so before coming in uh, to the aspects of uh, india and g20 like oh, india's role or what it means for future indian g20 summit uh, i would like to discuss last two couple of points so first point being uh, the e- us uh, chinese meeting which went on for a three and a half hours almost if i am not wrong between biden and xi jinping now there was lot of talk about calmness peace uh, no rivalry like uh, go back to the old way of uh, uh, engaging with each other again the, the it is same stuff what does that actually tell about like biden's approach to china or like basically you, we can discuss about either way like where, where is the us china what 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 did it indicate like the meeting between us and china um i would be oh, oh, abhi vardhan do you want to go first or um i'd wait for you yeah uh, okay um i'd be very very hesitant in reading too much into this for one very simple reason that the context in which it is occurring is probably unique so on the one hand as we discussed in previous spaces there is a lot of tension right now between the us and china uh, it it sort of covered over in the reportage because everyone's ukraine 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 oh my god ukraine ukraine oh my god ukraine all the time but they f- forgive me but they seem to forget that the rest of the world exists and in this rest of the world uh, the us and china are really going hammer and tongs at each other perhaps some other time we can have like a very detailed space on what exactly is happening in terms of economics but there is a lot secondly uh, especially on uh, russia the us is very is how do i put this is very sensitive right now because they are looking very keenly at how far china goes in supporting russia and how much damage they can do using that as sort of a justification 
and i think this is why you're seeing china pull back a lot from what would otherwise be pretty open support to a country like uh, russia i mean the fact that russia has to go to iran to procure what are effectively uh, cots uh, com- which is basically commonly available hardware uh, to use their drones which they call the geran 2 in ukraine instead of approaching china and getting better better built ones at uh, much better and with the addition of production lines for these drones tells you a lot and um, the third and final point i'll sort of make on this is uh, the three r negotiation should rather uh, i shouldn't say negotiation the three r meeting between the two should be seen in the context of how the uh, us and the soviet union sort of interacted with each other which is they would regularly have these meetings and after every meeting there was sort of a sense of okay you know what we've achieved some kind of equilibrium which we've achieved some kind of peace we've achieved xyz but in reality it was just a continuation of um, two superpowers sitting at the table i'm not saying that's exactly what this is we live in a multipolar world but it's something approximating that which is two great powers with a lot of sway on the international stage are sitting down and talking to each other to try and mitigate what each believes to be something that could bring great damage to themselves so if you if you ask okay we sort of understand what the chinese are concerned about but what might the americans be concerned about remember that joe biden even though he uh, the election didn't go as badly as many expected it to go has to lost the uh, house of representatives and the house of representatives have opened investigations into joe biden uh, and in addition to this the economic situation in america doesn't seem to be improving in uh, as dramatic a fashion as joe biden would have liked and therefore puts his chances of uh, re-election in serious jeopardy now on top of this you also have possibly have the business lobby within the united states very jittery about the fact that uh, biden can go too far too quickly and thereby send shock waves through the us economy which again is very dependent um on china so that's broad that could be a very broad outline of why us is also at the table and trying to negotiate because both powers recognize that they are at this stage where one side goes a little too far and it has uh, the sort of um uh, ricochet effect and a lot of other countries suffer in the fallout so that's how i would view it uh just to add while uh, i mostly agree with you use finite but because this meeting was happening in indonesia and i think asean block especially would have been uh, looked forward to the meeting with lot of anxiety given the tensions in taiwan and larger rivalry so at least don't you think this meeting was kind of a uh, more of a uh, it kind of it would have calmed down the block as a whole like at least for in the short term like uh, indonesia specifically be- uh, because it was the host um i am i i am i have a very sort of realist bias in this or even a hawkish bias so if i was a realist or a hawk sitting in any asian country i would say no because uh, china is very much like Ch- china is to the asia is to the indo pacific what russia is to eastern europe so if you were the baltic states and someone came to you and said you know what russia is saying that uh, they've talked with the us they've hashed stuff out uh, you know do you feel safe do you feel that troubles won't arise the answer is going to be no and that is exactly why for example the baltic states pushed so hard to join uh, nato that's how i would see that's how i would read uh, asian hawks asean hawks/realist um, positions um 
to what has happened, which is that this is a talk between two powers to sort of ensure they don't damage each other. But in the Indo-Pacific, we still face a Chinese threat. The Chinese haven't uh, dramatically uh, demilitarized. They haven't taken out all of those little man-made islands they made. They haven't become less aggressive. Their rhetoric still remains at this very ramped up uh, position. Uh, they still use arm-twisting tactics to get their way. In reality, nothing has caused uh, confidence. Sorry, nothing has inspired confidence in the thought that yes, peace could be over the horizon. So, if I was a realist or a hawk in ASEAN, no, I would not feel very confident. Though I stand to be corrected. However, then you would like to jump in on the ASEAN perspective. I mean, what you say is saying is true to an extent, but there is also a very strong pro-China lobby in the ASEAN, and it has always uh, influenced the way. I mean. Mm, even though many of the asean members are us security partners they have always had the strong pro china sentiment in uh, lobbies at least within their governments and uh, they don't want to take genuinely don't want to take a side in this because they know they are the immediate neighbors uh, to china and uh, they don't have enough strength on their own to face china so maybe we can say that ASEAN, yes, realistic, realist perspective says that, but again, they don't know what to do, right? So they are basically in a dilemma. Uh, well, uh, I would honestly say that if we, if I compare European Union and, and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, I'll say that ASEAN still has less dilemmas and it's more proactive. It can be pro more more proactive than the EU in some ways, if not all, because of some reasons. Uh, see, the point is with Europe, we have a relationship between Europe and US, the North Atlantic transatlantic sorry transatlantic partnership. So there, Europe seems to be very hedged and limited. And as you you finest said, there's a new term in international relations which we are, can call as strategic cold or strategic you know, pneumonia or strategicalness. So Europe is trying to uh, get its strategic depth, but ASEAN can do a lot still. Um, See, I'll get quickly on the US-China meeting and then I'll come on ASEAN. Um, most of the things which US finance says uh, are correct. And when we look at US-China meeting, uh, there's an article by UN, UN Ang. I've shared it on the spaces. People can read it. Um, we find this out that uh, Xi Jinping refers that history is the compass of, you know, looking at partnerships and relationships, which is very apparent. So Ambassador Nicholas Burns, who is the US ambassador to China, if you look at his tweets on Twitter, his activities on Twitter, he engages with the, you know, the American diaspora in China, with the Chinese students, Chinese, you know, you know, stakeholders across Beijing and other parts of China, wherever, wherever possible. And, you know, we talk about being China hawks and all that, which is fine. I mean, in strategic and security issues, we have to be. But um, this, this sleight of hand, how you are dealing with such a great power, because these two are major powers, right? These are the big powers by all necessity, by all means. Uh, I, I'd have added Russia also, but Russia is not that big in that particular sense when it comes to the power equations anymore. And 
sadly it has become what velina shakurva says dragon bear in some aspects not all aspects but in some aspects so keeping russia out what happens is uh, the americans uh, at least one thing which i say with the biden administration is that they at least know what they're doing um they have mixed some trumpism and some um old establishment consensus on china which is to say that yes they are being proactive on certain certain trumpism aspects as to how they will they deal with china however i feel very weird when uh, when they are not blocking tiktok which is actually to be monitored by oracle for example so this is a part of their technology and all, all those considerations they have an issue with ftx which again is an issue of competition law and you know cryptocurrency they are very bad at regulation so meanwhile the domestic aspects show that the us has weaknesses but it seems that with the establishment and with that trump trumpist consensus and trumpist avenues which which they which the, even the pentagon can't deny i mean they can't deny the abraham accords they can't deny the indo pacific they can't deny you know this maturity from pivot to asia to something better right so on that regard i think the us has still some clarity yes uh, we may say that president joe biden could not be in that same vogue but again it's not just about the president it's more about the us diplomats and their role so we have to consider that role seriously and when we look at china um comparatively the chinese have more clarity than the us here so which is why the reference to history is interesting and I was actually thinking to talk about the US-Soviet relations, and news finalists mostly pointed out the interesting aspect of it. And I'll just say that the, these turbulences, you know, be it the economic and trade war, be it semiconductors, be it you know defining the Indo-Pacific, be it anything, um, they actually uh, show how these countries are maturely going on. So. Um, a very impactful meeting, and on ASEAN, just quickly, I'll get in because Muse Finance wishes to speak. Um, on ASEAN, I think I consider that ASEAN countries can do little bit more than the EU, at least on the economic front to begin with. And you know, we talk about ASEAN centrality in the quadrilateral security dialogue or the Quad, as we know. But you know, it's both India and ASEAN who actually can do together. So you need India and Japan and ROK. I'm not sure. but let us say india and japan you need and maybe australia so i think with these three asean can actually do wonders and from the economic and technology frontiers they can try to at least start there will be pro china lobbies you go to singapore you will find a lot of pro china lobbies in chinatown and what not so that's actually always going to be so i mean vietnam is also stuck in that so <laughs> yeah i guess use finance just to speak just use finance uh yeah i just like to uh, some quick add ons i won't take too much time uh, the first one is that um, in regards to um, america the americans can actually afford to be a little more for lack of a better word confused in their approach towards china for the simple fact that they can do devastating uh, damage to china i mean they actually have uh, enough power to completely cripple china and destroy them of course they would also ensure their own destruction in the process it's sort of economic uh, mad but it has that capability and that capability sort of gives it a more leverage room so to speak uh, this is in contrast to europe where europe doesn't exactly have that kind of power i mean the, the worst europe could do is it sort of dents china very very badly 
but when you think about how much damage the us can do in uh, in relation to how much sorry in contrast to how much damage uh, europe does it becomes rather apparent rather quickly why europe needs to get its act together because if it doesn't um they will find themselves in a very 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 uncomfortable position that they don't want to be in um the second point in regards to asean i think the conversation at least i don't see this reflected uh, in the reportage as such um what i see reported in the reportage is like a passing lip service to india so people are just like yeah india exists they fight in ladakh china is worried about them india 1.3 billion people or something something along those lines but when it comes to uh, asean there is a lot more sort of um, engagement that i see especially in the in the coverage and i don't understand why perhaps this is just bias because when you look at the uh, when you look at it from a security perspective the uh, only nation that can do serious uh, that can do serious military damage especially from the human perspective in a conventional war is india 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 is literally the only country that can take up to a million soldiers park them in ladakh and duke it out with the russians to the point where we can grind them down into either a a pyrrhic victory or b status quo antebellum which would effectively equate a, a chinese loss and if you look at how uh, the two militaries have evolved and how they are positioned in china any conflict any firing that does take place in ladakh will end with disproportionately high casualties uh, for the chinese whichever way you cut it even if you add in add in their um, military and industrial complex advantage into the equation and it is precisely for this reason that xi jinping is very careful around how he treats india if you ever notice especially in this g20 summit um while europe while the european leaders were running around the place and having tiffs with each other over who got to say what to xi jinping at at uh, what time um the uh, meeting the sort of relationship india and china had was sort of very measured with the indian side being okay you know we'll meet you we'll have a handshake we'll have a laugh that's about it and i think that speaks a lot to where um, power dynamics within the region are headed i think people need to start seriously looking at the sort of um, security potential india has within any uh, plans to contain chinese expansionism because from my perspective the only way the us ensures that taiwan doesn't get invaded is by putting so many resources into india that it permanently makes a uh, that it, that xi jinping starts to question whether he can retain the portion of ladakh he currently occupies at least that's how i see it i just wanted to get this perspective out there just to add to that i mean this may go a bit off the tangent but uh, from the indian point of view i think india has been the only country that has been consistently uh, tried to oppose china in whatever way it can its own capacity since the earlier opposition to vehement opposition to bri to later even at the galwan or like at uh, doklam or whatever way you look at it i mean it has been consistent though it may never say as vocally as some western strategists would say in terms of symbolism or platitudes but uh, coming back to india now so abhivardhan how was the summit for india can you sum it up basically all right so for the not the upcoming president but the president of the g20 in 2023 a fabulous moment in many ways um, because of the kind of uh, 
achievements which india may have in the coming year which you know range from the sherpas to the thing 20 to you know all these other related sub events and engagements especially the engagement that you know all the diplomats will have in ladakh and srinagar so for india the interesting aspect is like you finest pointed out that xi jinping is very measured the one thing which we see with india is at the same time india will also be heading the seo heads of states kind of being the chair of the shanghai cooperation organization and most probably i think uh, uh, the shanghai cooperation organization summit for the heads of states will also happen in india that's very apparent so and at the same time uh, for india what's the benefit right and i'll just sum it up very quickly see the best benefit that india had was this it's a country which is what we call as international india it wants to have multilateralism reformed multilateralism but according to what india thinks and most of the time we as india hawks i'm i'm not exactly an india hawk but let us say I, you know everybody is so you know committed to indian national interest but i can't say if i'm a, if i'm a hawk but i'll say that i am at least a realist so i'll say that india which says that we have our own own realist considerations or own strategic autonomy this pivot has matured with time which is why when we, we voice out concerns against china we voice out concerns on the duplicate duplicitous stand you know duplicate standards duplicitous standards on the ukraine situation in the unga and other parts of multilateral organizations our position becomes more genuine and mature and coincidentally what happens is that our position is also something which is anyways going to be the almost situation like it's something which is going going to be the case and it has to be considered like as i told you about the uk india fta thing related to landsat right so uh, india's position is not something which can be replaced with certain other negative and certainly other i would say uh, counter intuitive consequences because let's face the fact um if we say that india is interested in i2u2 which is the abraham accords and all those things which are related to it the middle east wants to develop itself right west asia wants to you know have a european union like common market and so so forth in future if they want to what will be india's role very strategically important economically technologically right so when it comes to international governance this g20 summit gives india the highest edge because india as a country and as well as the government get the opportunity to obviously endorse their private sector their companies and all those entities but also give them edge in global diplomacy so as to you know become a valve in its own way with its own terms between many countries across so in the multipolar world india is at the best advantage at this and it still is yet to be seen how will new delhi you know use this opportunity it's a fantastic opportunity it will come maybe after 20 years by 2042 2043 if i'm right uh, so because i think uh, uh, india was going to be the g20 president in 2022 but you know they just swapped it with indonesia because in 2024 we have the lok sabha elections so it perfectly fits with the setting so Uh, and you know we have also the case that as the amarnath yatra will begin or is actually happening the security situation in jnk has to be maintained because that embarks confidence from the for the indian side like if we are is keeping people in amarnath safe we can actually host a bunch of diplomats from 
major countries, including some of the some of them in the G7. So yeah, a great summit for India and India is cautious. India is clear. It has been more mature. I'll not say that they have just gone in, you know, there's a theory in international relations, which we call as a mad dog theory. India has not adopted a mad dog theory approach. India has adopted more of a approach which shows the mirror in a good way. And that itself makes India's diplomacy, India's approach great. Now, I'll speak a little bit more, but I'll let you finest add also. Yeah, before you finish, jumps in, I would like to add a perspective. The way I see it, uh, like all, all this uh, consecutive G20 meetings in Indonesia, then India, then Brazil, I think this is the, like by the time the uh, Brazilian uh, G20 meeting happens, it will be 2024, late 2024. And I think this is the coming of age period of the middle powers onto their own. And basically, uh, it's it kind of reaffirms or confirms the longevity of the multipolar order i, I think exactly. or permanency of the multipolar order as we see it while this thing happens i personally see like uh, we are hosting seo summit then um, the g20 summit then leading up to elections it will be a one uh, thing after other so i think this during this phase we will also be almost touching 4 trillion dollars of economy so while the permanency of the multipolar order will be reaffirmed in these two, three years, beginning with Indonesian G20 summit, I think it will also be the coming of age for India transitioning from middle power to a major power, if not already a greater power. It It's kind of a threshold, like 2023 G20 summit will be a kind of a threshold marks, like every decade or every yeah. generation we, we recall the years, I think. 2023 yeah. will be recalled in terms of India's place in the global strategic uh, globe, uh, globe, basically where India fits in. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, people forget one thing. Like I, I was uh, reading a piece, uh, not piece, I think thread by uh, someone. I don't recall exactly, but uh, I do recall the arguments. Despite UN Security Council, uh, UN uh, is the body for everything. I think the real diplomacy, the real deal is actually happening in G20. And this G20 summit yes. actually reaffirms that. And G20 is kind of perfectly representative of the world that uh, it is then world what it was, basically. So, use finance. Yeah, before use finance, just one point, just one point, very quickly. There's an article published in Foreign Policy, although Foreign Policy publishes articles on India, which are weird, but this one is interesting which is actually by a French expert of international relations. Um, uh, this was tweeted by Gokul Sahani also. You can check his profile. So uh, not Gokul Sahani has written it, but you know he has shared the article. So thanks to him. So in that article, they actually say that if the Security Council becomes defunct, there will be five powers who will be very important to functionalize. Who are the five powers? India, US. Obviously, you have to have China. You just can't kick them out like that. It's just unreasonable, you know, to bring the autocracy versus democracy debate like that. Because, again, if you do it with China, how do you stay change standards? And then you just, you know, say, oh, Israel is not a democracy or India is not a democracy or Singapore is not. So how will you? So, again, main and yeah, obviously the last one is the EU. Main point was that if an internal uh, grouping mobilizes the UN because that they did the same with WHO. They try to do it with the same 
initiative in UNESCO through AI AI recommendation. They can actually do it with even through the G20. So the economic aspect, that is how even we will see if the Indo-Pacific economic framework grows or not. So use finance, please go ahead. Yeah. Um, I don't really, I don't really have much to say on this other than you know India's long gradualist march continues because as I explained in the last space we had um, the way I look at uh, things like India's representation at uh, G20 is that India hedges its bets. We are in multiple different forums at expressing our opinions, our interests, or even in some t- or even in the odd uh, case influencing certain. Um, outcomes uh, depending on which forum works best for us at that point in time. Um, I would agree with Abhivardhan though that G20 was successful for India and much more so than perhaps any of us were uh, expecting in the backdrop of uh, the Ukrainian war. Um, Especially now that India takes or sorry, India is president of the uh, G20 it marks an important shift because uh, increasingly there is a perception, at least the reportage would uh, like us to believe so, that India is becoming a quote-unquote mouthpiece for the global south. So stuff like uh, food security, energy security, inflation, um, as well as uh, things like cross-border payments, right? India is trying to push UPI through very, very strongly. Um, and access to uh, different countries when it comes to things like debt restructuring and climate finance. Um, India is seen as a strong spokesperson for this block, so to speak. And I think uh, a lot of people, again, this harkens back to the uh, India security underplaying point. A lot of people just pay lip service to the global south and just say all the right things so that they can go about their daily job. But there is actually a lot of power contained within the global south, because as we're starting to see in the Ukraine, uh, in the Russo-Ukrainian war, um, the West does invest a lot of attention and resources into ensuring that uh, countries with large populations are on their side. And this is in addition to another very important and sensitive subject for the EU, which is migration flows because they are very quickly starting to realize that if you destabilize countries in uh, the northern part of Africa or don't help countries in achieving political and economic stabilization, you will have all those people going to the next best spot, which is not America, which is an ocean away. They'll try and make a run for the EU. And the EU simply doesn't have the kind of resources to uh, deal with this. A best case scenario of this is look at what's happening in the UK. Um, a couple of thousand Albanians sat on rubber boats and made it to, made it across the English Channel. And suddenly it's a breaking news uh, story. Albanians are protesting in uh, London saying that uh, they're being uh, singled out for unfair treatment. The media is absolutely grilling the government in question and the government can do little other than say, uh, we will take strong action. What strong action? Nobody knows, but we will take strong action. Right? And all the while these uh, quote-unquote migrants are being housed in five-star accommodations and all of their bills are, of course, paid by taxpayer money. At a time when living sta- the cost of living in the UK has touched sky-high levels, and if any of you follow Jeremy Hunt's uh, financial statements, um, the outlook is not very bleak. I mean, they're probably touching uh, very high debt-to-GDP uh, ratios. Sorry, not debt-to-GDP ratios. Uh, they are going to increase taxation uh, to levels not seen, I believe, since the 40s if I'm not mistaken, 20 to 30%, that's sort of what people are talking about. So when you look at it this way, 
India has a lot more power in a very important framework, which is the G20. And how India wields this power will be extremely interesting to follow, uh, especially because for the first time in a very long time, we seem to have a government that's actually run by realists and actually run by hawks. It's not, uh, I know we go, go along with the Vasudevi Kutumbakam um, uh, quote-unquote motto, but beneath that veneer, there is also a iron fist in a velvet glove to borrow military, uh, term, not military terminology, but strategic uh, security terminology. So uh, I would like to uh, have the final point uh, discussion on the about India and G20. Now that India is a host of G20 and uh, uh, India is also a host of SEO until uh, and it will be like into the late 2023 and from there then the election season starts. So is and even as this may while this is going on in parallel there is a stalemate still in the Himalayan borders at Ladakh and there are still hundreds like tens of thousands of Indian troops, Chinese troops facing each other. So is this the time? Like, because I, I would think that Xi Jinping would not at least escalate in this short period of a one, one and a half years. So is this the time to kind of find the uh, detail method, like finish the standoff in the at the borders? Like, do you think Xi Jinping will be open to it? Because we should not forget, Chinese are still uh, in our territory and they have to go back, right? Avivardhan? Yeah, so uh, views finest can tell better on this, but I'll say that if the meetings will happen as, you know, the media says in Srinagar and Ladakh, then, you know, uh, Xi Jinping can't be hasty, like I said. He is cautionary. He also bides time, like, you know, Den shopping and others. I mean, that's a very common Chinese characteristic, you know. But uh, if they will cause any escalation in Arunachal or, you know, near the... Just uh, sorry to interject. I don't think there will be escalation, yeah. but uh, yeah. I also think uh, either party, yeah. India, it's a successful G20 meeting and... Yeah. Uh, China, as India being a host of not only yeah. G20 SEO, I don't think for at least one and a half year, China will do anything. Uh, they would not. Uh, exactly. So, but, they but would not. Beyond they, this, beyond yeah. this, will there be some movement with regard to the current stalemate that we are seeing at the borders? A stalemate, well, discussions are going on for now. I mean, uh, but uh, the again, the same point which Dr. Jashankar makes is that uh, what kind of a consensus has to be achieved here? And um, we still have to see how these meetings will go ahead. So uh, the G20 summit in New Delhi and even Srinagar and others, that is the concluding part, which is will happen in November 2023. So there are a lot of economic and development related meetings. But meanwhile, it's not that just because these meetings are happening, there cannot be other kinds of meetings outside the scope of G20. For sure, there will be engagements among, you know, army uh, counterparts across the Quad and even ASEAN and, you know, maybe even Israel will participate if possible. So these things will happen. I think the more question, the more most important point which you're trying to make is how much significant will be the coming year? So in that regard, um, maybe they would try, but 
ad uh yeah i mean so there are like two ways to look at this uh one is the correct rational sorry one is a logical rational way of looking at it which is no like why would you try and start something in a region where you already been beaten black and blue but the second point and this is why i uh, i am very hesitant to place um ji in the bank category he is he can be anything but rational at times i mean uh, what happened in galwan was a completely irrational move if you look at it from the perspective of you've already you you know what's happened in doklam you know how strong the indian response was you know how resolute the indian response was there was a, all in a, there was an implicit threat of war made which still didn't get the indians to buckle right but still years later you're like hmm let's have a crack right and how does how does that end up it ends up bringing more indian soldiers to the border it ends up with a uh, faster infrastructure development and now you have india playing hardball with china when it comes to negotiations so uh, it it is very much possible that's how i put it especially with the chinese the greatest lesson that 1962 taught anyone dealing in china policy is you can never trust the chinese at the end of the day because uh, the chinese are truly worthy competitors uh, when it comes to the uh, realist perspective in security they are looking at it not from the perspective of principles rules or what you need to do or uh, sorry or uh, you know maintaining equilibrium of sorts they're looking at it through one perspective which is expansionism and conquest they have certain policy aims in the indian subcontinent it is very clear that they want indian territories and all they're figuring out is how much time they need in order to in order to take those territories so say between now and say over the coming year there are developments that uh, significantly alter the number of casualties the chinese would take in any conventional war fought in ladakh is it completely out of the realm of possibility that they try something uh, a little bigger in ladakh to test india's response i i would be very hesitant on uh, calling peace in ladakh anytime soon it certainly you, you can you can put it let's put it this way is there a chance of a large scale war breaking out in ladakh possibly not is there a chance of skirmishes very violent and deadly skirmishes breaking out yes or 50 50 at the very least that's how i see it so you, you don't see any end of current uh, standoff basically oh no far from it i think we are heading towards a major one okay okay so i one think uh, add, just one thing to add on the china point like uh, there was there was an argument happening on twitter and a very recent point which was made that if we have had skirmishes with china and we may actually go ahead with a war like situation with the chinese why is it that the trade which india does with china at least when it comes to certain goods certain you know things i'm not talking about electronics and others i'm talking about uh, you know basic commodities in certain aspects not all aspects why is it that india is importing and why is it that the trade deficit is not being handled properly and if you try to link it with how india banned tiktok and all you know 
what use finest very rightly emphasized is this and i'll tell you what see uh the galwan situation was an excuse for india to take certain severe measures against huawei against tiktok and what not that was the excuse because we all know in 2019 paytm's shares uh, alibaba had actually maybe more than 20% of the shares of paytm right and then after the galwan situation softbank takes over right now i think uh, you know softbank has also you know given up some certain shares in paytm but you know the chinese influence is now out in paytm and i'm giving one example what i'm trying to say is that in the long run there is a situation that war may happen or maybe not we don't know and the chinese are very uncertain but one thing which we see interestingly is that uh, maybe yes there is a lot of trade deficit and concerns could rise but what india is trying to portray is that they, they will try at best to you know hedge out china's tentacles china's approaches but global cooperation at some level maybe through a regional lens is very necessary for india because i mean you don't want a fragmented europe like dilemma of the 1940s in india right which is what is referred to the south asian region in that very you know rhetorical sense when we compare india with other countries which is why uh, think tanks have started to ignore pakistan and started focusing on the bbin group when it comes to addressing indo pacific issues what is the bbin group it is the bhutan bangladesh india and nepal group and even sri lanka has been excluded funnily due to the economic situation out there and their relationship with china and india so uh, india is in a curious position and they can use it well but again she is very hasty so let us see most probably uh, india will hedge out away from the economic frontier to uh, you know because china is a middle income economy you know in certain ways it has a middle income trap so let us see maybe india can try to create its own hedged solutions by you know trade relations and other things let us see but uh, to say that using tiktok as an example to ban and to show deterrence was the key it wasn't the case but it was an excuse so we are slow pretty sure in handling china sometimes but we are voicing out and we are now increasing our i would say speed we are accelerating towards something better so let us see very interesting times yeah yeah i hope india has a fruitful and relatively peaceful g20 summit which i think is very very key in terms of how uh, india positions itself and in, uh, in the globe basically for foreseeable future uh, i think abhivardhan uh, i will end this session here i don't think we have time to cover climate conference uh, and uh, listeners next week uh, there won't, next weekend there won't be a session because i won't be available we will be having next session in couple of weeks um thank you use finest for joining thanks once again abhivardhan and abhivardhan close off with the final technical details where listeners can find this session sure so um you can just go to google and type the bharat pacific and you can find our website um even on spotify if you're using spotify premium or not you can just go to um you know you go you go to the search bar and type the bharat pacific and you will find our podcast sessions and this one will be uploaded by tomorrow uh, so that will be the thing the recording is available for 30 days so you can hear it anyhow 
repeatedly and uh, you will get the recordings out there so either you go to bharatpacific.com at the home page you will find it on the header or you go to bharat pacific on spotify you will find our recordings our past sessions all out there so thank you so much for you know attending the session it's been a pleasure having all of you and thanks you finest thanks aditya thank Do you so yes yes uh, just a second uh, before going on do listen to our uh, podcast sessions uh, this is our fifth session so you will find all the five sessions uh, in the website abhivardhan has uh, mentioned and again i am repeating we will have our next session in couple of weeks not next weekend uh, once again use of finest please close off use finest uh, oh yeah i was just saying uh, thank you everyone it has been a pleasure uh, have a nice time and uh, before going you have given a new term today something called strategic cold which was funny <laughs> yeah trademark uh, yeah yeah that's that's trademarking definitely yeah yeah, yeah. Tra- trademarking and pl- uh, i will be using the term in many places now that i heard it so i will uh, i hope i have your permission but okay <laughs> uh, see you sign off